Well, as you're sitting down, grab your Bible, your gift from God, and open it to John chapter 13. What chapter? 13. We're continuing in our series called Miraculous, uh, going through the Gospel of John. And uh, we are coming towards the last times here where before the cross, the last hours, the last days, if you will. And what a passage to start the year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. John 13. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Um, I just want for you to know if you've been around church a lot and maybe have come across this passage or had it taught before, I just want for you to know I don't have a bowl up here with water. I'm not going to be washing anybody's feet today. So if people in the front, you can not be too nervous. Um, I say that uh, really quite seriously, actually. Um, You know, I think sometimes we take things that uh, occur and we almost make the event or the the thing that's done bigger than the message of the event. Uh, Jesus washing the disciples' feet is not a new sacrament that's put into place. Uh, On top of that, I just say our culture does not get this at all. It's actually kind of weird. And um, there's a message that's behind this event that happened here. That's where we're going to be digging at today. Because, friends, there is an incredible call on our lives to start the year out with this passage. So let's dig into it and, and, and savor it. Here we go. John, what? 13. We're going to spend a little bit of time on the first couple of verses, and then we'll be picking the pace up as we move along. Now, verse 1, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. Let's pause there. Uh, Jesus knew something. He knew that the hour was now come. Uh, This is actually a big deal because all through John, multiple times, Jesus has been saying, the hour's not now. This isn't the hour. Uh, The hour's not yet, not here But John chapter 13 says the hour has now started. The hour has come. The hour is that whole thing of the death and the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ. And we see in verse 1, it talks about he's going to return to the Father. I mean, imagine that. Uh, The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, from eternity past. And then God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, comes down in the flesh to dwell among us uh, for the hour And now he's going to be looking forward to going back. And I think he's like, yeah, I'm going back. That's an awesome thing. But let us remember that when we talk about the hour and when Christ talks about the hour, that crucifixion is involved in this. When he says this, we're going to see in a little bit, his innards are churned up. Christ was not the first one ever crucified. In fact, Christ grew up in a culture in a day where crucifixions took place and they saw crucifixions happen. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. Can you imagine if you know that within hours, within days, you are going to be beaten to a living pulp so badly so that you are literally going to be unrecognizable I trust you've seen the movie The Passion. If you haven't, you need to. 
Imagine you know that's coming. Imagine you know that you are going to be put on a cross, nailed to it, pierced through your wrists, through your feet, hung as carnage to die a torturous death. Imagine you know that's coming. Wouldn't your guts just be churned up inside now? I bring that up because don't forget what's happening here. Christ knew that. And in all these events from verse thir- chapter 13 to 17, before we go to the cross, this is right there in front of his eyes. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, look at the last part of verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Uh, we start out and we see that Jesus knew his schedule for the week. <laughs> Jesus knew his schedule for the week. And it wasn't a real happy time, but yet it ended well. It ended well, but getting there was really rough. Now we see this other part. Look at this. Jesus loves his own, having loved his own. Hey, if you know Christ is your savior, if you've been redeemed, if you've driven the stake in the ground, understanding you're a sinner separated from God and you need a savior and you've received him and it's like, listen, I'm after him. I'm after that. That's what I'm all about. I want for you to know this. Remember Revelation 5 we read just a little while ago? That one, the only one who can open the scroll, the one that the whole universe is going to be bowing down to and calling worthy, guess what? That one loves you. Now, that's a great way to start the year out. Hey, I don't know, maybe you've had a bad, rough, hard year. And maybe this year is going to be hard. I don't know. But I know this, that one loves you if you are his child. Isn't that awesome? Now, look at how he loves you. Uh, Look at this. It also says he loves his own, but Jesus also knows where his own live. The ones he loves, he knows where you and I live. I love that statement. He knows where you and I live. He knows the reality of our life. He knows the reality of our world. The one who loves me knows where I live. You're not just a number. And you're not just irrelevant out there. He not only knows you, loves you. But he knows the reality that you live in. He knows where you live. That's encouraging. A third thing out of this verse, look at the end. I think, frankly, this is my favorite part of it. He loved them to the end. Jesus loves his own who are living in the world to the end. Now, what does this mean to the end? Actually, there's discussion about it. And so there's kind of two meanings. Adverbally, uh, in the Greek, this can mean to the uttermost love. He utterly loves them, is what it could be saying. In the form, if it's understood in a temporal form, it means to the end of his time, to to the end of things. It's interesting in the Greek because we don't know which one it is. It could be argued it could be one or the other. I vote this, both. And I vote both because the scriptures really talk about our Savior that way. Hey, starting the year out, know this. Verse 1, if you are his child... He loves you. He loves you knowing where you live in light of living in a sin-cursed world. And he loves you to the uttermost love possible. And he will love you to the end. Bam. That could be end of sermon right there. 
And I know many of you are probably like, yeah, let's go. Um, but we don't have a second service. So guess what? Oh. <laughs> hey, verse one is huge. In fact, I want to encourage you to do this. I want to encourage you to take a pencil or pen if you have one and circle, put a box around verse one. And here's why. Verse one is key to chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. It's almost like an opening statement that now comes out. Because if you look in your Bible and look at the next chapters to come through 17, there are kind of all these discussions that Jesus has with his guys. And this is all going on. And one of the hard things about, in essence, preaching on this and cutting it up is you feel like it's all cut up over the weeks. But it's not. We're starting a discussion with the disciples. It's going to be continuing on literally for about two months. And verse 1 is just a setting place for that. Jesus knew his schedule for the week. He loves his own. He knows where his own live. And he loves his own to the very end, to the uttermost. Now verses 2 through 35. Jesus has a command for his own. Jesus has a command. Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Let me pause there. In this verse, um, for those of you who may do a little bit more reading, I just want for you to know you may come across some various commentaries, some who talk about that uh, the form of what the, the language here is actually saying that, uh, is, is the text saying that Satan put it into his mind that this was what's going to happen, or is this Satan put it into Judas's mind? And, and actually the word has this idea of throwing it, this idea of, of throwing it out. Is this an idea that's coming out of Satan? Is he throwing? What's happening here? I think it's the latter. I think most people would understand it to be that case. But I just want for us to pause here for a moment. We'll pick up more on Judas a little bit later here, but this. Whatever's technically going on here, the reality is, is that Judas is now conspiring along with Satan to betray Christ. And I have a question for us to ponder that we'll deal with a little bit later, and it's this. How does somebody like a disciple get to that point? I think what the text is saying is, in other words, Satan threw into Judas's mind like a tempted, hey, Judas, how about this idea? And we're going to find that Judas bites and takes it. How is it that a guy who has been following Jesus Christ for some three years now, hearing the things he's been saying, seeing the things he's been doing, all the miraculous stuff, how could someone be around that? And then be a tool for evil like this. Imagine being betrayed by a close comrade. No, wait a second. But imagine being betrayed by a close comrade who is selling you out to death. And he knows it. How can someone get to that point? Pick that up a little later. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. 
And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So what's happening here? Well, it's, it's kind of like this. Uh, I won't spend the time getting into all the setting of it, but just they're at table, they're at the table. It's kind of down on the floor, sitting more down. And so Jesus gets up from that and he goes over and he, and he kind of takes us, say, kind of picture like a robe off and, and there he is. And then he grabs a towel and he puts a towel around his waist. Why is he doing that? He's doing that because that is the dress of the lowest of servants. Now, I don't know if you've caught this before. I'm going to tell you, my study this week, this is actually, I was telling Karen the other day, one of the things that stuck out the most to me. You know, we have the picture of him washing the feet. But he didn't just do the act of washing the feet. He looked the part on purpose. He knew exactly what he was doing. He took off his clothes, put on the towel, because we are visual people. And these guys are right now looking at him and going, Oh my word, he is dressed like the lowest of servants that there are. And then he comes over and he gets the basin and he starts washing their feet. The task that is done by the lowest of servants. What's the picture here? These guys' minds are blown away. Please understand that as we go through this event, as we see in these coming verses, all of the disciples are just trying to begin to comprehend what's happening here. I mean, their jaws are just on the ground. They're not getting it. They're shocked, utterly shocked by what's taking place. Almost to a point where we could say to them, it's disgusting with what's happening. But that's what's taking place. A radical event. Let's pick up verse 6. We can see this. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord... Do you wash my feet? Now, I don't think the tone when he said this was, Lord, you would wash my feet? How special. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think it's more like this. Lord, oh, you wash my feet? Honestly, I think Simon Peter's creeped out here. This is not right. No, no. My, our rabbi, our teacher, our, our Lord. No, you don't do that. You're not going to wash my feet. No, that's not right. Uh, Now look, Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now. And we would all agree with that, true? They don't. But afterward, you will understand. How hopeful. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Do you see how shocking this is? How literally repulsive this is at the moment? Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Hey, listen, unless the Lamb of God has washed away a person's sin, he or she can have no part with him. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Look at this. I love Simon Peter. And he said to him, Lord, not on my feet also, but my hands and my head and my back. And, you know, do, do the whole deal. I love that. If that's what you're talking about, I'm full in. Full in. Do the whole deal. Way to go, Simon. Sticks his foot in his mouth a lot. But on this one, way to go. Ten. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. But not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. 
Judas is there. Judas has already put the plan into effect. And Jesus washes his feet. Can you imagine that? Uh, please understand, Jesus, Jesus is not a victim in this whole process. Part of what this shows is Jesus is not a victim. Uh, right there at that point, he literally could have just like fried Judas into smithereens. But he didn't. He washed his feet knowing, knowing that this dude is selling him out to death. No, no, no. No, he's not. No, he's not. Jesus is not a victim. Jesus is washing his feet because he knows he's going to the cross. And Judas is hearing all of this. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? I love the way Jesus teaches. He starts with questions. Uh, No, they don't, but he's drawing them in. Here he goes. Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. This is an example. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If, conditional, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do these things. Jesus is setting an example. The example is, you need to do like this. You need to be like this. How is it? That the Revelation 5.1, how is it that the second person of the Trinity, Colossians chapter 1, who created all things, how is it that that one could be putting on the garb of the lowest of human statuses and doing what he's doing? Why would he do that? As an example. As an example. Hey, friends, if he could do that, can't we do that? If the one who truly has all power, has all wealth, has all might, has all things, if he can do that, shouldn't we? Why do we have such a hard time being humble and low servants? It's hard, isn't it? Our world around us cries out to be your own person. Be the mighty, conquer the universe. What a radical call. So verse 17, I ask, maybe for some, uh, do you know this call? If you don't, you do now. Let's all be informed. This is the call that Christ has on your life and on me. For his children. And not only are we supposed to know it, but we are supposed to do it. So I have a question for us. Are we? Are you? Verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Uh, This whole thing in John, the Father and the Son, the tightness there. Let's keep going. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. The word here has the idea he was, he was stirred up. I think it's clear that this was actually a visible stirred up. It was just turmoiled. And it's just, why? Because the hour was coming. And also because look what happens. And testify, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Man, that hurts. Have you been betrayed? You know some of what's being talked about here then. We've all experienced some kind of betrayal in life, if you will. But could you imagine this? That you're the Revelation 5-1 and this dude sells you out? Wow. Verse 22, and the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned him and asked Jesus whom he was speaking. It was probably that John, the, the one whom he loved, John is sitting next to Christ. And it's probably that Peter is next to him or near. So he asked John to ask Jesus. So uh, uh, that disciple, John, leans against Jesus and says to him, Lord, who is it? Uh, Jesus answered, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel. Folks, this is really important right here. Look, then after Judas took the morsel, Satan entered into him. I just let me answer the question of so was Judas just a pawn that had no responsibility? Absolutely not. Because right there, Judas was one more time. He had one more opportunity not to grab the morsel. But when he did, the deal was done. And an unsaved person, Judas, is now possessed by Satan. Up until that point, tempted, pushed, Judas could have stopped it along the way. But up now, he does the final off the edge and Satan enters in him. And Jesus said to him, what you are doing, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Well, many things we could talk about here. But I just want to ask one question with Judas because I'm really keying in on the call, the command that Christ is giving here. And here's the question. How does a person that has been intimately affiliated with Jesus for years, as I've already said, seeing and hearing all that he did, how does he get to this place? Well, a couple things that are noted. One, he'd done a great job fooling the masses. And we see in the text he had done a great job fooling the other disciples. None of the other disciples thought he was the one. None of the other disciples thought that could have happened. Have you ever been in a case of times where you're in a situation, maybe at work or whatever, and all of a sudden something, somebody like defects, and, and, and someone in the group kind of goes, I always wondered where their heart was. You know what I'm talking about? But here's the deal. None of the disciples thought that. From everything we read. At that time, Judas had done a phenomenal job hoodwinking everybody but one. 
He had been around God's people. He had gone to church. He had done the deal. He had prayed. By the way, Judas went out with the twos when Jesus sent them out to do ministry. Judas was doing that. Judas is an incredible example of religionized thinking. Doing the right stuff, but the heart was far, far, far from Christ. Matthew chapter 7, many will call me Lord, Lord, and I will respond, but I never knew you. Hey, as we start out the year, I just have to ask this. If in this process, as you just hear this, are you hoodwinking yourself? I grew up in church. I went to a Christian school or Christian college. I was involved in Christian ministries in my high school. I don't know. You fill in the blank. Is Jesus just a convenient guilt remover? A convenient duty? A convenient golden ticket? A convenient fire insurance? Because Judas was right there in that kind of a game. In fact, why did he follow Christ in the very beginning anyway? We don't know this. But I've often wondered from what we learn about Judas, because we know that Judas was embezzling money out of, their, out of the group's thing. He was the treasurer. I've often wondered in the very beginning when he was following Christ, if a Jew at that time knew that the Messiah, the Messiah was going to be coming, sitting on the divinic throne, setting up the kingdom that the Old Testament talks about, that was in their mind, the one where the world would be bowing. And I wonder if an enticing part of it was, I want a little bit of religion, but oh my word, this could be my ticket to the lotto. We know this. Satan or Judas's heart all along was not in the right place. And as we start out the year, friends, I just have to ask you, if that is you, don't 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 hoodwink yourself. If that is you, there is a savior that calls you to receive him as your savior and follow after him. And you know what? He will love you. And he knows where you live. I don't mean like he's stalking you, but yeah, he is. But I mean, he knows where we live. And he, even in light of this, if had Judas not taken that, he would have loved him to the end as well. And I just want to call you as we start out 2012. If you have not driven the stake in the ground for Christ, for sure, maybe you've done some spiritual ditty dance, but it's never been real. I just want to call you. Christ calls you to repent and to receive him as a savior and to get after him. And don't do the religion game. That's heavy duty. The heavy duty keeps going. Here we go. Verse 31. Oh, by the way, look at the end of verse 30. And it was night. Wow, there's actually kind of a lot of meaning behind that. Verse 31, when he, Judas, had gone out, Judas left. Jesus said to the 11 remaining, 
Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is the Father is glorified in him. And if God the Father is glorified in him, he will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children. What a sweet term. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Pause. This has been an incredibly freaky night for these dudes. Here they have their rabbi, uh, their Lord, the Messiah, get up, put on the garb of a lowest of servants and wash their feet, the lowest of tasks, and they're freaked out by that. Then Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, and they're freaked out by that. And now Jesus says, I'm going somewhere and you can't come. Freak out. Bless these guys' hearts. I think sometimes we're on the other side of the story and we look back and, 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 and I want to tell you for these guys, that them trying to process, their minds just must have been going, spinning on this evening. What in the world is going on? And right we're in this place where they're about ready just to like implode with what's happening. Jesus gives them a command. Look at this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Let's break this up a little bit. Jesus is a new commandment. It's not new and like it's never been done before or it's never happened before. It, it's new in that it's a new marching order in light of the fact of the, the Messiah is dying. And, and now for the ones now coming, listen, I've got a new marching order for you. And what is that? And that new thing is not a suggestion. It's not a, hey, I got a nice idea. By the way, you guys, I, you know, let, let me just kind of throw something out there for you to consider. What is he asking? What is it? It's a command. It's a command. It's a commandment. A command means do it, right? And, and remember, this is the Revelation 5 one that everyone bows to, that all bows to. It's that one giving a command. And if that one's giving a command, I would think that we would go all ears. Yes, sir. So it's a new command that he's giving. And it's a command to do what? To love. We'll fill that in here. But to love who? Love who? Very important. Please understand this. Jesus is not doing this example to his own family. He is not washing the feet of his mother and his brothers and sisters. We're supposed to love our family, right? We are. Scripture talks about that. But this example here, that's not that specific setting. This example here is not Jesus out in the world, if you will, and, and washing feet of people who are unsaved or are unredeemed in Christ. He's not washing their feet. He's washing the disciples' feet. And he's telling them, listen, my ones, you love one another. That's the command. Listen, this command right here is inside the walls. This command right here is for us. If this is your church, this is a command for us. If you're visiting and you attend another church, uh, this is a command for you at that church. This is a command for God's people in this ministry reality going on. 
This is a very narrow command. It's it's very, very important to understand. How are we supposed to do that? What kind of love? Uh, Like Jesus. Like Jesus' love. And in fact, if I remember right in the story, didn't he just give a great example of that? Like what kind of love? Like the kind of love where I step off of my pedestal and you step off of your pedestal and I like get on. Servant clothes. And I serve you. And you serve you. And we serve one another. Listen, friends, that's this call. That's this command. This is a big deal. And if you think about it, that was Christ all the time. Yes, he came that ultimately the glory would be coming back to him. We see that in the text. But he came to redeem people to bring him glory. All along, he's living like a servant to you and I. All the way to the cross, all the way to the empty tomb, all the way to the right hand of the Father, who is now seating in a place that is working as our intercessory. I mean, friends, that's serving. We're supposed to be like that. But my life is about my career. No, it's not. No, it's not. But my life is about my hopes and dreams. No, it's not. Our life is supposed to be about serving the one and the one tells us to serve one another. I just, I just want to tell you, this place would absolutely rock the west side of Indianapolis and beyond. I mean, if we, every one of us, and I, listen, there's been all kinds of love going on. All kinds of this happening here over this last year. And yet in this, we've been commanded to love one another. And we've been commanded to love like that. And if we loved like that, could you imagine what God would do with that? We would not need any assimilation pastors. We would not need any kind of other things. It would just be happening. It would be happening. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. By the way, I think this would be a great time to see a great story of God's people living this. Uh, name is Don Hubbold, and I go to the uh, Rolling Meadows uh, campus. God was not the first thing in my life. My attitude was totally wrong. Come in, get out, and let's go home. And I always heard Pastor James say, you know, you are loved. And week after week, I just kept hearing the same thing. You are loved. Have a great week. Then I started questioning, can you really find a church that you're loved at with people? I doubted. 
you know, yeah, how can you love me? You don't know who I am. You know, it's just a saying. Getting to know them, you had a sense that they were in despair and they really did not have uh, a solid relationship with the Lord where they could really trust God for things. Uh, you know, Don had mentioned about, you know, sitting in the back of the church and saying, uh, oh yeah, you are loved, you know, what does that look like? And I don't believe that. All of a sudden, my wife gets up, I hear the word help. So I'm running to my mom and she's out the back door and screaming for my dad. And I asked her, do you want me to call 911? And that was the first time my mom's asthma had gotten that bad where she said yes to call 911. That was scary. She walks outside, I need fresh air. She turns and looks at me and says, um, I love you, goodbye. At that moment, I knew I was in trouble. Laid her on the ground, and I started CPR on her. It seemed like it took forever for somebody to come, and I look up, and finally a police officer's there. You know, and I've seen her eyes dilated, I see her jolt, and I think that I just lost my wife after 34 years of marriage. And I'm asking God, how, why, how can you do this to me? In the back of my mind, I kept hearing Pastor James say, you are loved. I didn't know what to do, so I pick up the phone and I call my small group leader, Bob Schroeder. At 2 o'clock in the morning, 2.30, not knowing that he would answer his phone, he did. You know, I was half asleep. And as soon as I knew it was Don, and he was crying and, you know, said that Nancy had passed out in the driveway and the paramedics were on their way. He told me to relax. He says, God's in control. And he says, where are you? I says, well, they're taking her up to Lakeland Hospital in Elkhorn. No sooner I get to the hospital, I decide to call Bob to tell him that I'm at the hospital and I'll give him details. And Bob on the other line says, I'm five minutes from the hospital. And I'm like, what? He says, I'm five minutes away. I'll be right there. As we walked in together, here we see my wife in the uh, emergency room on a ventilator on life support with all these tubes. I knew we should pray. And we just began to work our way through the Psalms. And we would, we would read a couple of verses and then pray those verses back to God. And we'd read a few more verses and pray that back to God. And, and each one of us took uh, turns doing that. On Christmas morning, I finally gave in to the Lord and told him that um, you're in control and I, if you need to take my wife, you can have her. I had her for 34 years, you can have her and I'm willing. I had such a peace at that time. The next day after Christmas, a nurse come running and says she's awake. And I'm like, what? Out of the blue, she woke up and the doctors couldn't believe it. My name is Nancy Havold. I worship at Rolling Meadows while I was in the coma. I knew at that point that I was in his presence. And then when I came to, I couldn't stop talking about the Lord and everybody that came into my presence was going to hear about who he was. The miracle is she had no brain damage. She seemed to start getting her functions back. 
we didn't know where we were going and Bob and Karen Schroeder, so dear to our hearts, opened up their house not even really knowing us. I had some great um, love for my small group. I had guys calling me. I had emails. Never in my life did I have this kind of support from the people of the church. Bob made some phone calls, and I'm talking about not just Rolling Meadows. I'm talking there's guys from Crystal Lake, Elgin. A gentleman named Mike Phillips ended up showing up, and he says, you yank everything out, we're going to put a new furnace in your wife's house, not knowing that somebody from Harvest wrote a check and paid for the furnace. And to see people go through that uh, and to watch God at work in their life has been a real joy for Karen and I. And to be part of that, you know, to be able to experience that uh, is just something special when you get involved in people's lives. Do I want anybody to go through what I went through? No. But this is how God had to show me how I was loved through the people of Harvest. Amen. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved. Merry Christmas. I am loved, and I really get it. I, I really understand what it's about. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another and that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Did you, did you see that for Don? Seriously, there's a place where people really will love like that? Don was asking the question. And look what happens when people love like that. Christ is glorified. The gospel is expanded. And great things happen. Hey, I had uh, put together this week a list of God of work events. I didn't want to just leave it like this is kind of a big event, but I wanted to just share a whole bunch of God at work things that have been happening here at this church. And as the week progressed, I decided not to do that. The reason I decided not to do that is this. What Jesus says is a present active word. It means this to be presently and continuously. And I am just going to say this. I celebrate the God at work things that have happened, the loving one another things that have happened over this last year. Absolutely celebrate it. And there's so many I don't even know about. Glory to God for that. And yet, here's the reality. It's a present active command. It's something that we're to be doing increasingly and always so. So this morning, as we go through this, I want to conclude by this. Hey, whether this has been something of, of having eyes to look around and to see, who can I love on? Who can I love on? If that hasn't been part of your life, guess what? Time to step it up and put it on the platter. If that has been part of your life, the way you've been living life, fantastic. To God be the glory. But guess what? Time to step it up some more. We never get there. We never finish the task. Check. It's not done this month. It's always an opportunity. It's a command that's to be continuous and always ongoing. Church, we are to love one another. But I don't know anybody. Then guess what? That's one way you can love one another, is go. In fact, here's what I'm going to do. In the center of our ministry target, we have two things, Sundays and small groups. 
Let me just give you an example on Sundays. What if we all upped the ante in coming on Sundays to being the kind of people that up the, upping the ante love one another increasingly so? Imagine what would happen on Sunday mornings here. I'm not saying it's not happening. I'm just saying we upped it even more so that we love our kids by serving them and teaching them even more. That, that we disciple them unto the Lord. That when we come in, Sunday morning isn't just about what am I going to get out of it, but it's about who can I serve? Who can I serve? Whether you've been here one week or whether you've been here since launch, who can I serve? Because did you notice in the command, there are no other set requirements like you have to be at a church so long or you have to be a believer for so long or you have to know so many people. Guess what? All of that is irrelevant. Here's what's relevant. Love one another. And imagine if we came in that way and even when we sang, we just upped the ante even more to where I'm singing like it's for real and we just upped that ante. Imagine if on Saturdays we prepared for coming on Sundays. Do you realize that when everybody's here, we're actually a church of just under 600 on Sundays? But yet every week we have about 100 people gone. I realize life goes on, but I'm just saying in some ways, maybe it's the kind of thing that is one of the ways we can love one another is just be here. Uh, Maybe it's, I don't know what. Maybe it's taking someone out for lunch on Sundays. Get this. If all of us agreed, and I brought this up in eleven. If all of us agreed that one Sunday a month, we're going to initiate getting together with someone, not wait for someone, initiate getting together with someone one Sunday a month that was new, someone I didn't know very well, not the same old people, but someone I didn't know very well, just one time a month, I think we could do that. Go home and have eggs or go home and make it cheap, whatever it might be. But here's what would end up happening. That means that this group would be up at it this Sunday. And if this group was going to be doing that, that would mean that that group on their Sunday was asking another 25% of the church to hang out with. That means that on that Sunday, 50% of the church family was doing getting together, getting to know each other and love on each other. And then the next week, another 50%. I'm just going to tell you, doing lunch after church, if everybody was in on that gig, this place would up the ante loving one another to a whole new level. Because relationships would be developed. Love would be extended. I'm just telling you, that thing alone would rock this place. Small groups. How can you love one another at small groups? Uh, By going. Because that's their design so you can get to know life with a few group of people, smaller group of people than in here. And to go ready to love on them. To go not just to learn, but to do your lesson well. Going and prepared, I'm going to enter in this. I'm, I'm in on this. I love you guys. This is one of the ways I serve you. And my eyes are open to what's happening amongst our group. That would up the ante in small groups, wouldn't it? If everybody did that, hey, friends, as I've gone through this text again and again and again and again this week, I've just been going through and I've been going, oh, my word. Life would change if we all really did this. Just this one thing. It doesn't require any more staff people. It doesn't require a building. It doesn't require anything. 
and out of it, the world would be rocked. I want to encourage us as a church family to up the ante to love one another. I'm encouraged by what's been happening. Way to go, Harvest. But guess what? It's present active, continuous. And we're starting the year out. And let's get after it. I love you guys. That's easy to say. But love is first and foremost an action, not a feeling. And by the way, Jesus acted it. And the feeling was there as well. Hey, guys. 2012 is on its way. And we have a command before us right now to love one another. Think we could do that? Up the ante a little bit? I would love to see us do that. Wouldn't that be awesome? It really would. Easy to say. Let's do it.